There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Dope Black Woman podcast, the podcast where we share stories of black excellence as part of our safe digital sisterhood. I'm Leanne Levos. I'm Rashan. You can call me Shan. I'm Livs. On this episode, we're joined by Jadina Lawton. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, hey, Jadina, how are you? Hi, hey, yeah. I'm good. Yeah, how hey. Are you <laughs> trying to get through lockdown, trying yeah. to just make it. But, you know, we move, we move. We move. <laughs> how are you, Leanne? I am doing well, actually. I went surfing this weekend, which was really great. Um, I'm, where are you based? I'm in Jamaica at the moment. Oh, Gosh. And we hate her for it. <laughs> oh, torture. <laughs> I'm going to do a post about this this weekend, actually. But I've been trying to do things that allow me to practice being fearless and hoping that it will, like, translate into my personal decision-making because I'm horrible at decision-making. But I feel like if I practice doing things like jumping off bridges or... Oh. Oh, I practice that too much. <laughs> then it will kind of translate into my capacity to be fearless as an individual when I need to make decisions about things that like really matter. Oh, I like that. So, I like that mentality. Trying. So one thing that we always ask all our guests right at the start is um, what makes you a dope black woman? Oh, what makes me a dope black woman? Um, I guess self-confidence, um, knowing who I am and not feeling the need to justify my existence all the time in different spaces and I guess turning up as the same person in all those spaces that's that's what makes me a dope black woman being confident enough to be the same person no matter where I am yeah that sounds nice being authentic we find yeah. that a lot we love it yeah I love that and it's taken me a while to get there but yeah definitely that's a really important facet of of being a black woman I think yeah and obviously you've got, um, you're the author of your new book, Baseless, which is coming out, ne- mm. is it next week? Yes, yeah, February 18th. Amazing. February 18th. Everyone pen that down. Well, in the UK, <laughs> and in the US it's the week after, but yeah, February 18th in the UK. Yeah. And like with that, you obviously draw on experiences from your own experiences of growing up and your childhood and things like that. And I remember a few years ago, I think it was in like 2017-ish, 2018, where I read an article, I think it was on The Guardian, I can't even remember, yes. but I read an article an article that you'd written about like your experience of um, your identity, and I just think it would be good to kind of set the tone of the podcast, if you just explain oh. a bit about the, th- the themes you spoke about in that podcast, in that episode. Yeah, so in 2017, I had just come back from travelling, actually, um, went to a lot of different black countries to live and I came back to the UK and I wanted to write about some of my experiences and some of my childhood experiences, which were, I grew up in a white family with no explanation as to why I wasn't white as well. And although I had two very loving parents, I had a younger brother, everywhere I looked, everyone was white on both sides of the family. My mum is Irish, my dad's English, and we grew up in a very white suburb of London. Sutton um which is kind of near Croydon but not half as interesting so <laughs> and, that, and that's saying something no 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 offense to anyone that lives in Croydon but it's... I'm from Croydon I'm from uh... Croydon <laughs> <laughs> representing for myself London Massive there we go there we go um but yeah you know Sutton there's not much that goes on there but in you know the early 2000s it was far less mixed than it is now so it was a very white part of London um I was the only person that looked like me in my year group at school and I always had questions as to why I was black and my family was white and it just it went unanswered until my dad got really sick in 2015 and after a series of DNA tests I discovered after he passed away actually that he wasn't my biological dad 
and that my mum had had an affair with a black man that she's no longer in contact with and that I don't know anything about. So I really had to question everything I thought I knew about myself and that's why I left to go traveling. And when I came back, I wrote an article about, about my identity and about that story. And yeah, it went viral really quickly. It really, it really took on a life of its own. And from that, mm. I was offered a column. And then, you know, from all that writing online in The Guardian came this book, Raceless. And yeah, it's sort of a continuation of, of those themes, but in more detail. As you said, everything kind of went crazy after this Guardian article um and this is no shade to the Guardian because it could be any newspaper but you know I remember at the time seeing a picture of your face who you know to most people is obviously a black woman and then the title was something like you know my mum always told me I was white and I believed it. it was something along those kind of lines mm. um so I mean looking back it's now been three years is there anything about the story that you would have done differently or handled differently or are you happy with the way it was told um I've certainly learned a lot about myself and having agency over my story which is why I wanted to translate things to a book format because you have so much more control Mm -hmm. over your narrative and you know as a 22 23 year old writing online you are sort of subject to editors whims and changes and also you don't get a lot of choice about the headline so I'd already written Mm -hmm. that story I guess in another couple of formats online and I'm not going to direct anyone to to the websites because difficult sometimes for me to look at it because the headlines have been written in even worse ways than the Guardian. The Guardian one was actually traumatized by because I'd I'd written similar things and the headlines Mm. I had no control over and I'd had you know I was beefing editors and emails why have you put this headline on it that's not what we agreed and after that happened a couple of times I, I I learned a lot about myself and I learned that you can say to editors from the beginning can we discuss the the headline or can we sort of work together on the headline because they like to you know think they're they're in completely in control of it but you can ask those things and I started to do that more and more but by the time I wrote in the Guardian I guess I was a bit hardened by some of my experiences writing from writing online already and Mm -hmm. that headline it wouldn't have been my first choice but it's not something that particularly upset me at the time and you know they're looking for clicks they're looking for engagement yeah they, they got it they definitely got it but then from that I was able to have a column where I really was able to steer the ship a little bit more in terms of my narrative and then from that it's led to to raceless so there's nothing I would have done differently but I think I also would advise young young journalists young up-and-coming black writers like if you're sure that you want to write about pain and trauma make sure that you you speak to editors beforehand about headlines and what you're letting yourself in for and whether they can turn the comments off if you want the comments off so you're not like you know target number one online Mm. everybody's got an opinion about this thing that you've written so you you can definitely be a little bit more strict in how you protect yourself and I wish I knew that definitely when I started out writing yeah and particularly with a story like yours um I feel like so many people jumped on and had an opinion before they even read the article because you see a sentence like that it's just like what Oh like, yeah, I was um, I was a meme. Yeah. I was like, I was getting trolled in <laughs> comments. I was, you know, my friends were sending me memes. I was like, you don't need to send me the memes. Like, just 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 I've report them. Like... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just we don't need to do that. But they were they were concerned as well. Like my mates were concerned that the story was sort of spiraling out of control, and it definitely felt like that at one point because it had I don't know like over eight hundred thousand page wow. views on it. One of the wow. me. Mm. and it was just there's so many eyes on you and then of course you're wide open to all kinds of opinions from from racists from weirdos from people who are upset in themselves they'll email you and they'll tweet you and they'll say things mm. in the comment section like oh couldn't you've gone to specsavers to know you're black and it's like oh we just need to the responses that I got that were positive were amazing and I, you know some of them made the book I've interviewed people who've also had to navigate weird identities in this kind of in-between space and that was really worth it for me because even though had some negative reactions I had a lot more positive ones and I ended up speaking to and connecting with people who could resonate with some of some of my writing which was amazing yeah one of the things that you mentioned was the idea that you went or the fact that you went on a series of trips to a number of black predominantly black countries Um, I don't know if you did this on your own but one of the things that I've noticed in my experience having moved around a lot you know I've lived in the states I've lived in the UK I I make it a point to go on solo trips very often it's not Mm. only the power of going on a trip by yourself and kind of embracing your own 
itself in all of its glory, but also how my blackness is treated differently in different spaces. And I was wondering mm. if you could talk a little bit about what you learned. Yeah, so it was it was incredibly educational for me and it really helped me sort of piece together parts of my identity that I hadn't really engaged with. And yeah, I started off in, in Brooklyn in the States and lived there. I was trying to get a visa as a writer, but I couldn't get one. So I was just sort of working remotely from my laptop and living with two African-American women who I wrote about in the book. And yeah, we had some really interesting conversations about race and identity. And I remember Alexis, my roommate was like, yeah, your story's sort of similar to a lot of African-Americans because you know I don't know where I'm from, but I'm proud of my blackness. I'm African-American, but I don't know the country from which my blackness comes from. And I was like, does that not bother you? Does that not make you sad? And she was saying, that's what it is. Like, that's what it is in the States. Like we're all kind of part of this collective identity and in the main, you would be classed as black here. We don't really, I mean, they do have the term biracial, but it's a lot more of a collective sort of force in the States. So that was really interesting to hear, hear that. And it really got me thinking about how some of my story is similar to that of, of African-Americans. And then I went to Vietnam for a bit. Um, I wrote about the hair industry there, which was, which was really interesting. And, and I just saw how the boundaries of blackness, I guess, have shifted and how they are still subject to change um, depending on society, depending on colonial pursuits, depending on geopolitical borders, all of that stuff. Um, yeah. Sorry, one second, I just thought I lost you there. Um, and yeah, I found that in the Dominican Republic, which is an amazingly vibrant, beautiful country full of black and brown people, they share the island with Haitians and to them, the Haitians are black, but the Dominicans, they don't have blackness in the same way as, as Haitians. They've made up all these kind of interestingly complex terms to <laughs> denote what it means to be black, but not as black as the Haitians. They've got all these different racial categories and, you know, they would be bending over backwards trying to tell me, oh, I'm not black. And I was like, okay, right. So I'm not <laughs> black in the Dominican Republic. I'm black in the US. And then I've also tried to sort of come to terms of my own blackness and maybe the Dominican Republic's not the right space for me. But it's, I mean, it's an amazing country. I loved it. But just to see the impact of, of colonialism and how it's really wreaked havoc on, on these amazing, vibrant parts of the Caribbean and Latin America, that was really, really sad, but really interesting to, to see that some of the troubles that we've got in the UK have been transported far and wide across the world. And I was just going to say, how does it compare to your understanding of blackness and race in the UK having grown up in the way that you did? I had a very unique experience, I guess, not in, not necessarily in a positive way, but not having my blackness acknowledged in a white household meant that I didn't see myself as black for a long time as a child because it just wasn't acknowledged. And that really speaks to the power of family law and the power of, you know, what our parents tell us and, and, and how much we want to belong when we're kids. And then when I got to about like, you know, 13, 14, people would say as I ventured into you know, more diverse parts of South London, people would say, oh, you, you look mixed race. And I was like, okay, I'm mixed race, but what am I mixed with? And who is lying to me if I'm mixed? And what does it mean to be mixed? So we definitely have, have more of a differentiation, I think, in this country between blackness and mixedness. And, you know, we see a lot of discussions on the timeline at the minute about those two things and, and, and what that means. Yeah, it was very interesting growing up in the UK, not having the right language for who I was and then going mm -hmm. to all these different places around the world and seeing that actually that language changes depending on the community the context the culture mm. um and it just it just really points to the fragility of these racial categories and how flimsy they are and how sad it is that we've 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 been subject to to these laws around race from people who have you know built these spaces without our comfort in mind these categories aren't our fault they've come from whiteness they've come from white colonial powers but you know we need to take some responsibility as well for for upholding them and, and really really um holding each other to, to specific standards around them yeah you so you obviously went um you when you traveled abroad that was was that like a part of you finding yourself again or like um creating your own identity almost yeah, definitely. I mean, I wanted to, to live in spaces where I could see myself reflected around me. That was such a key thing. And I, I wrote about that in the book, about not having a racial mirror. And that's, that's key for any person of colour, like having a relative that looks like you, seeing somebody that's doing well, 
in your family that that you know has your features that's that's really key for your sense of self and when I got my DNA test results I felt like there was a lot that I had deliberately missed out on because I was afraid to assert parts of my identity and I was afraid to yeah I guess I was afraid to to like make myself appear different to my family so even simple things like not braiding my hair I'd never got that done when I was 20 21 because I thought you know it'll make me look too black whatever that even means in relation to my white family mm. so I was, I was really cautious of you know there being this sort of arbitrary list of things you need to do to become black like it wasn't that it was just more like a an immediate desire to play catch up with a lot of the things I'd stop myself from doing and yeah. I just knew that it would be easier if I was around and lived in spaces where I could see my my reflection around me all the time so that was like the key motivation in, in wanting to leave Sutton and in wanting to leave that white part of the UK that I'd grown up in. So like based on that experience do you think that you can define what the word blackness means to you? A lot of the time we look at people of colour and we presume to know about their cultural identity. I guess writing Raceless, I'm trying to add a bit of nuance to the idea that, you know, there is no expected cultural identity to be had if you are black. Like there's many, many ways to be black. There's, we're not monolith, we're not homogenous. I, I think it's interesting because, so Roshan, Lives and I were just talking about this before in terms of even the, f- the fact that we're all black, we all have different perspectives and different understandings mm. and different interests. And, you know, even when it comes to race, uh, being black, black mixed and Asian is a very different experience from mm. what you've described, Georgina, or what Lives has described on the podcast. Mm. But there is this kind of similarity, in, particularly in the sense of having being expected to be a certain way because you... Are mixed with something else and Liz, I don't know if you felt this if you if your experience or if Georgina's experience resonates with you as well coming from a part white family versus my yeah. different um I feel like a lot of the pressure I was putting on myself it's not like anyone said to me you need to be more black or you need to be more white mm. I think it was you know you put that pressure on yourself um you're not sometimes I guess you know you talked about cultural references like braiding your hair or it might be the food you eat or where you go that I guess sometimes when you're mixed race you feel like you have to justify more Mm. because people will assume that you're you know you're making a point I guess yeah I don't know like you know for example um I could love um like I love a good roast dinner I ain't gonna lie I love the Yorkshire pudding and I love that I like I like the whole shit but then like you know some people might be like oh gravy some people might take that as like um you're not in touch with your black culture and it's like it's it's just a meal like it's just a food it's just one meal like so I feel like yeah when you do, do come from mixed heritage sometimes you do have to work that little bit harder to find out you know who is me like what makes me me exactly exactly yeah and is that even rooted in anything other than race because I love a Sunday roast as well (laughs) I grew up with you know my Sunday dinner is you're not sometimes I guess you know you talked about cultural references like braiding your hair or it might be the food you eat or where you go that I guess sometimes when you're mixed race you feel like you have to justify more Mm. because people will assume that you're you know you're making a point I guess yeah. I don't know like you know for example um I could love um like I love a good roast dinner I ain't gonna lie I love the Yorkshire pudding and I love that I like I like the whole shit but then like you know gravy. some people might be like oh gravy some people might take that as like um you're not in touch with your black culture oh, yeah. and it's like it's, it's just a meal yeah. like it's just <laughs> a food it's just one meal like Literally. so I feel like yeah when you do, do come from mixed heritage sometimes you do have to work that little bit harder to find out you know who is me like what makes me me exactly mm-hmm. exactly yeah and is that even rooted in anything other than race because I love a Sunday roast as well <laughs> I grew up with you know my Sunday dinner is roast chicken and rice and peas but because my mom was Asian she'd also have like curry on the table or exactly. she grew up in England she went to boarding school in England so Yorkshire puddings and shepherd's pie were a staple in my household as well 
in mm. the middle of Jamaica. You know what I mean? So you're right. Like how many of these things that we identify as racially associated are even have anything to do with race at all? Well, yeah, it's all it's we conflate these terms, but it's all to do with cultural cultural socialization, right? It's not even we've we've attributed certain cultural norms to certain races and that's why I think we need to have more nuance around these discussions because there's a lot of shame and embarrassment around, you know, people who who have been brought up in white families who are black. And I related my story a lot to people who had been farmed or fostered, the process in which, you know, Nigerian and Ghanaian kids were brought to the UK in the 60s and 70s, up until the 90s, actually. And they were brought up by white caregivers. And, you know, these people had two black parents back in West Africa, but they were fostered by white families here. And of course they ended up loving all the things that, you know, their white fostered brothers and sisters love like Yorkshire puddings or whatever. But then they also lost out on some cultural aspects like getting their hair done and, you know, having a caregiver that knew how to cream their skin. There was loss and there was gain. But in talking about my story, I, I spoke to someone in the book, Gina Knight, who'd been fostered. And, you know, there was a lot of, of um, pain there because people expected her to know more about her Nigerianness and they expected her to behave a certain way and they expected all this from her based on what they could see mm. but it's we need to look beyond optics when it comes to um when it comes to race sometimes and, and, and remember that the cultural socialization isn't the same for everybody just because you know we all come from the same country whether that's Nigeria or or you know part Jamaican or whatever it is it's it's um yeah there's a variety of cultural practices that that can happen to any black person they're not all going to be raised in the same way and I think people need to remember that when you uncovered the truth about your identity and about your heritage um how how did that change the dynamic between you and your family because you said that you know grown up they didn't really discuss your blackness so what happened after everything came to light um, yeah, it was really difficult because my dad wasn't around. He'd passed away already. So we'd never got the chance to discuss mm. what our relationship really meant. I never got the chance to thank him for staying to raise me when, as a lot of people have pointed out since, you know, a white man taking a black baby home from hospital and, and not challenging his wife and staying to raise the kid. And I got raised with more love than I knew what to do with. That's such a rare concept, but we never... I never got to reflect on that as a child because he was just my dad and my mum was just my mum and I never really questioned or felt, you know, that I should be extra grateful for my parents. Like they were just my parents. So when everything came to light, it was, it was really difficult. Um, I just felt like I had to rebuild everything I thought I knew about myself and I had to, you know, go back to these relationships that I had with all these, these people around me, all of whom were white and, and ask questions, ask, you know, why was this, not spoken about for so long why did you get up and walk out the room mum when I asked you what my race was age 10 11 12 why did that happen why couldn't you help me answer these questions why did dad not speak to me about it and I had a lot of rage I had a lot of anger and it had built up inside me for so long so when I got the DNA test results it was like this outpouring of rage and sadness and questions and it was really, really hard. It was hard. So I, I felt like I had to leave to go and sort of give myself space. That was another reason I left and to put space between me and my mum. You know, there was a sort of tidal wave of grief and depression that hit me because I hadn't processed any of it. I'd just taken off and had this amazing time, but I hadn't processed any of it. And when I came back, I was really, really not myself. I was really down. And I had to go to therapy for a long time with my mum, but also on my own and just really learn to process that anger and it really helped it helped me let go of a lot of things and it helped me with a really good therapist who was a black female actually that I'd, I'd been recommended yeah I was just gonna say earlier on I think there was like a turning point was it 16 I think or like teens I think it was like 13 where you said that people started to pick up on the fact that you wasn't black I mean that you wasn't white mm. before that do you think and this might sound like a strange question but before that do you think you ever when, so before when people weren't questioning that do you think there was ever a period of time where you might have benefited from white privilege even oh, though you actually yeah. met yeah absolutely like I think it's such a good question I feel like it's a question that a lot of um black women are asking me I never really get asked it in other interviews but I think it's a really good question and I think we need to talk a little bit more maybe about the protection that comes from having white parents and the stewardship that comes from having 
white family because as I was just saying somewhere else like you know I went to a very white school I was the only black person in my year in primary school but I never felt othered by teachers or maybe I didn't pick up on it but I never felt discriminated against and maybe partly to do with that is the fact that you know when I had parents evening it's two white parents that come and speak to my teachers Mm. my teachers look like my parents they sound like them they talk like them and that in itself is something I never thought about but looking back you know loads of my friends have had racist experiences at school in South London but I didn't have that and I was in a, a hugely white school and I wonder now if if that protection from my parents helped me at school because I know that it would help me in other other areas of my life like even navigating whiteness like I felt so comfortable in it because that's all I knew I was happy to be in a room of white people as a child I didn't feel out of place unless someone pointed it out because that was my cultural language like I was I was um and I didn't have that in my head but then again I was never told that I have to work twice as hard or I was never told you know you need to prepare that people will treat you differently because you're black I never had that discussion either so I think I had sort of like a level of confidence maybe it was a false confidence and then when I got to you know like 17 18 and I really started to think about my place in the world I was like this this doesn't wash I can't go through the world really believing that I'm gonna have the same treatment as my white brother that's not the case like I'm starting to see it more and more but definitely as a kid I wasn't aware so Mm. Yeah, And I also, I also think white privilege, the discussion around that or, you know, having privilege as a black person who's part white, it needs to be expanded and spoken about in terms of, yeah, the not just the optics and what you can see, because I'm not white passing, but of course I have a level of white privilege in how I, how I look, I guess. But it's more about expanding that definition to, yeah, really include the protection and the stewardship that comes from from having white family members I think that needs to be spoken about a bit more and um you know race has been such a outside of your own experience and outside of what you've been through it's it's like a major topic that has been over the news and in you know people are talking about all the time you know in light of Black Lives Matter movement um last year Mm. and you know I, I wondered where do you see yourself where do you fit into those conversations now that you you have you you know you've kind of as you said you've grown more and you've grown in confidence and understand who you are so how do you how do you navigate those kind of conversations oh um how do I navigate those conversations I guess I've been writing about you know race and identity for a few years now um not just related to myself but related to my interests related to the political landscape and I think when you're putting yourself in in those articles, in those discussions, it's a different challenge. And when you're writing sort of objectively, it's a different it's a different challenge. So that sort of feeling in my core that I want to make the world a better place somewhat. Mm. So it's it's always going to be something that interests me. But I think you know, moving away from writing about my own experiences is something I'm definitely keen to do in sort of like the next few years because it's 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 yeah it's it's tiring sometimes I think to to talk about issues to do with race when it's it's so personal and I know that on top of that when everything was going on last year with the Black Lives Matter protest I just had to take time out online because I'd been writing about race and identity and then it was as if we were all expected to have an opinion and then all our friends who were white wanted to ask us for our opinion on stuff that it was just, mm. it was so much. And I don't think anyone should be expected to sort of, um, you know, be the go-to person for, for anybody. But when you're also working in that industry and you're expected to talk about it or you have to talk about it for work and then you're also going online and seeing all these these traumatic things in the news that affect people like you, it just, it can be a lot. So yeah it's something that will always shape my career I think I don't want to completely move away from talking about race and identity thinking about in a more positive aspect when I interview other people sort of black writers and authors that I look up to um there's a lot of ways to talk about race and identity without it always being about trauma I guess as well yeah for sure mm-hmm. need more stories about black joy <laughs> yeah and I think that's really happening like I've seen a lot of people getting book deals and you know doing stories about black love and I think there's definitely a shift now in terms of okay we've made our mark with a lot of personal narratives and a lot of anti-racism books but let's also have amazingly 
uplifting stories about black love and black joy and black happiness because that's just as important if not more so to humanize you know humanize our stories in in, in the media as, as much as we need to sort of we don't constantly want to prove our humanity but talking about trivial things and having black people in rom-coms that you know are really badly made like we need all of that as well because <laughs> we have that with white actors and we have loads of crap media produced by white authors and <laughs> we need the space to be crap as well like there's no need for everything to be so serious and to be so so um sort of political like we need the space to fail and we need the space to make bad art and, and, and be able to bounce back from that do you know what I mean yeah no definitely mm. I, I mean I think Tyler Perry makes enough but no you're right I think mediocrity <laughs> is something that we don't celebrate and I think we've talked mm. on the podcast before is just that when we use the word the kind of hashtag black excellence whether it's on Instagram or Twitter we're really just highlighting people who have done by and large mundane things like I graduated wow. from high school today <laughs> that's amazing and that's you know what I mean it doesn't have to be this I'm making groundbreaking research in this area that's a it could just be that I had a great day and I was nice to someone and that yeah itself is <laughs> hashtag black excellence I ate a good dinner today I had a nice roast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> black excellence. yeah like the mundane that needs to be celebrated the joy and you know all of all of that good stuff alongside the the race stories and and the campaigning which is so important and it's just something that I really do feel is 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 worthwhile work but because I feel like no matter where you are on the the black spectrum it's all it's always I think it always can be a challenge do you know what I mean so even like the other day I was talking to my friend and he was talking about the fact that when he goes to Ghana he's not seen as Ghanaian he's seen as foreign but then his experience of being in the UK is of someone who is not British, even though he is born here and is British. Exactly. And I just feel like before we've been on the podcast, um, there was an episode where we all asked each other like what we what our favorite thing about being black was. And I just wanted to know like from your from from going on a journey of like thinking that you was white to then realizing that you're black or mixed black, whatever you prefer, whichever you prefer. Mm-hmm. Like what was like the most exciting thing to to that you found out? How how do you think your story has been received by black people versus white people? Because I guess I would assume that, you know, a lot of the criticism abuse you got from white people is because it's just something they can't understand or get their head around. But I guess like some black people are more likely to understand, you know, just that sense of trying to fit in just that sense of yeah. that white is the norm and that you know everything else isn't um yeah um it's really really nice to see the commonalities in my story and 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 that of other people of color other black people and it's just like you were saying like your sorry that person that was saying I don't know who spoke but yeah um, your friend who says that they feel dislocated from their Ghanaian heritage when they go to Ghana and that's something I hear a lot from my British Nigerian friends you know like they've got traditions that they want to uphold when they get married but of course they feel that sense of isolation culturally because they've grown up here and speaking to people from all walks of life from all different parts of diaspora people who have been raised in white families people who have been raised here it was really nice to see see my story resonate with them and to see them reach out to me and and you know talk about our similarities and that definitely made me feel a bit less weird because my story is quite quite hard for some people to digest it definitely made me feel less alone and I just think if anything's going to come out of these conversations not just around my book but around race in general it, it's you know that we need to show a little bit more empathy and compassion to each other when it comes to talking about our experiences because there's so much that we have in common whether you're mixed race black or you know second generation Nigerian Ghanaian there's so much that we could have in common talking about identity or feeling dislocated from our cultures or feeling othered in white society there's more that we have in common than than we don't I think and yeah I think it's important to bear that in mind and and to have those conversations with each other as as a black community um and then with white people let me try and think have I been interviewed by someone we definitely don't delve into the racial aspect as much I think especially when I get interviewed about this stuff um I feel like white people are a lot easier to impress. So 
<laughs> very I never feel I never feel like I need to sort of really go into depth because I'll say something quite simplistic about race and they're like amazing yeah great and <laughs> that is the pull quote for the heading no. <laughs> no it is easier to impress them that it is talking about it because they they you know they feel really conscious of tripping up on saying something you know offensive or worrying so they say a lot less I think about race so when it comes mm. to talking about it with white people it's white people I don't know shall I say so like you know white people that are connecting with the book white people that are interviewing me it's a little bit easier to to say less and impress more because it's it's not necessary for me to go super deep on these issues but when I'm talking about it with other black people we can really connect to you know the heart of what these issues are and I really like that like they're they're really fun yeah. to have these interviews and get really deep into discussions about you know dismantling white supremacy yeah. and the black community all that's really interesting <laughs> but when you're when you're talking to white people it's more about I guess sort of their role and how they can be allies and yeah mm. people have responded to it in different ways which is which is equally nice like it's it's been great all around I was gonna this may be a bit of an odd question but um do you feel a sense of responsibility that you have to defend your family mm. because even though you know people have different opinions on what they did you know it's still your family and you know overnight everyone had an opinion about them yeah definitely that was really hard at first writing online and you know seeing comments that people went really in depth in sort of why did your mum do this and blah 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 and I was like okay I've wanted to write about this but I also still want to protect her because she's still my mum and we've yeah, got that's great, crazy. yeah we've got a great level of love for each other and people wouldn't all still tweet me now and say oh, I've listened to your audible series I did a series about DNA testing called the secrets in us and I interviewed my mum for it and even still I got a tweet the other day like I listened and I was very angry at your mum at first very angry but then I realized you know she's going to run <laughs> And I'm like, oh, thanks, stranger. I'm glad you're okay with my mom. Like, yeah, literally. I'm like, you, you're angry. What do you think it was like for me? But like, I know people are trying to trying to build that bridge with me, and I do appreciate it. But it's 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 still strange having people's unsolicited opinions about your life and your family, of course. And that's something I don't think I'll ever really get used to. And it's something that I definitely wasn't prepared for when I first started writing about race and identity online. Yeah, for like that first article, because I feel like when people write, <laughs> you got really triggered by that, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Who me? Yeah, you 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 read the comments. I feel like somebody read some bad comments. No, I, I didn't even read the comments. Oh, okay. I, I, I actually never read comments. You never really read the comments, guys. honey. I know. <laughs> I didn't, like genuinely, like never read comments on any, on anything. Like, no, it's why? It's why? It's just bad vibes. just from talking to you, I'm just thinking like, I imagine if I wrote something that was really sensitive to me and close to my heart and was actually involved people around me and mm. then hundreds and thousands of people had a lot to say on it I yeah. feel like it would go from being a cathartic and therapeutic experience to actually something that was re-triggering really because yeah. everyone just got so much to say do you get what I mean yeah absolutely like I definitely felt a great level of responsibility writing about my family at birth but we had to you know we had to talk about it in therapy how my mum felt with me writing about these things and yeah we discussed it and she was definitely finding it hard at first even though I you know I deliberately didn't write anything negative about her because I knew in two years time three years time in six months time you're going to feel differently so I deliberately you know stayed away from writing super negative things about my mom even though at that stage I definitely had a lot more anger mm. that, was, that was a great opportunity for us and we're a lot closer as a result but yeah I definitely look back at some of the stuff I wrote online I'm like wow like were you really brave or really stupid because it's so exposing <laughs> It's so exposing yeah. and I think that sort of era of writing really deep personal essays, you know, finding my blackness essays, there was definitely a, an era where that was going on all the time and I often wonder how many people think back to how much they got paid for this little essay that was incredibly heart-wrenching to write and whether they regret it or whether they, because that lives on the internet forever, like some of that stuff mm. you can't get rid of and there's nothing that I regret writing but I definitely would have exercised a little bit more authority over over my headlines and over turns of phrase and you know with editors I would definitely exercise a bit more authority and I think that's why I loved writing this book because I had so much control over my story and I was reflecting on it years later and I was in such a good headspace compared to where I was in 2017 but you know that article got me where I am now and it's, it got me 
and my mum to talk about things and it inspired conversations and therapy and it helped with this book so yeah it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about your relationship with your mum because you know your story it's you know it's a story about identity it's a story about politics but it's also you know I think when I read it I kind of stepped back and it made me think about the decisions our parents make Mm. that we that we never realize we never get to sit down and talk about why they made them and how they impact us and how they impact us for the rest of our lives exactly um so has this whole um this whole experience has it made you think about you know, if you want to have kids, how you would raise them or talk about racing your own households? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's something that I think about all the time. And I think for a long time, around 2017, up to, up to quite recently, I would say to my friends, I don't think I want kids. And I didn't know where that came from. I'd never been like really maternal as a child, but I felt like a strong urge not to have kids around the time I was doing all this writing and I kept talking to my friends about it all of whom were in relationships like with the same guy that they've been with since uni and it was just me the single one and I think I put up sort of a wall or a front because I was having to reflect so much on my own childhood and it was really painful I was seeing you know in Sutton more and more like tiny little mixed race babies and girls being held by white parents and I was just getting flashbacks of when I was that age walking around Sutton and what that must have looked like in the 90s because there were hardly any kids that look like me back then but now suddenly in Sutton and the surrounding areas it's so much more diverse and I kept seeing these kids and I kept seeing like myself in them and I spoke to my therapist about it and she was like yeah you're you're obviously reflecting on on what that was like for you at that age and thinking you know what stage of your identity were you at what were you told at that age and I I was agreeing with her I was like yeah it's very odd and I think I didn't want kids for so long and then as I've sort of felt more comfortable in myself over the past few years, it's like suddenly this urge to like settle down and procreate has like come upon me in a way that I didn't think it would ever come upon me. But I think it's just come from wanting to, I can't imagine having kids and and raising them in a colorblind household. Like that's not gonna happen because I'm a black woman and I know how much damage that attitude can do. But in terms of, you know, the love, the support, the routine, the structure, all of that my parents gave me alongside like a whole load of love and I think I also was worried that I wouldn't be able to replicate that because my dad showed me so much love and my mum as well but especially my dad like I was such a daddy's girl and you know he was teaching me how to read teaching me how to ride a bike when I was younger teaching me how to drive a car like he was always making time for me to, to to better myself all the time and his wins my wins were his wins and you know, I get worried sometimes I can't replicate that level of love because I'm getting really deep now. <laughs> I can't replicate that oh, level of, it's okay. of love because it was it was all consuming. It was so much love I had for my parents. And, you know, they did, of course, do things wrong with this with this approach to race, but they did so much right. And mm. there's definitely definitely things that I'd want to take on board if I do have, have my own mm. kids. Well, I respect you so much for having the attitude because, you know, so many people would be like, you know, they don't want anything to do with their family after something like this, but you were able oh, yeah, to no. still see the good in that. It took a while. The good like, in them. It, yeah, 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 it took it definitely took a few years to really calm down and see that. But yeah, the book I guess was cathartic because I got to really put myself in their shoes and really think about what it was like when I was born and how much fear and shame my mum must have held on to for so long, not talking about that person she'd been with that had brought her this this child that she loved, but was also kind of reminded of of her infidelity every time she looks at her and that was me and that was why our relationship was not as close as it could have been because she couldn't she couldn't process that she hadn't forgiven herself mm. even though even though my dad had forgiven her because he stayed for his whole life and they never spoke about it and they never argued about it so it was yeah interesting to put myself in their shoes when I was writing the book and interview my mom and I think our relationship is so much stronger now as a result of yeah talking about all this I think that's really I think that's really relatable because I think a lot of people um can relate to like getting older and then like humanizing their parents yeah I I surely can I definitely went through a phase where um I felt like the superhero mum I had in my head didn't really exist anymore yeah and but the reason why I thought that was because I was seeing mistakes that I wasn't aware of before and then then as I got older I was like no, she's still the superhero mom. She's just a superhero mom who's also a human being. And exactly. I'm also going to make 
just the same amount of mistakes, if not more, or just different. Do you get what I mean? But I feel like when you're growing up, your parents are these people that are perfect and you don't know anything other than perfect people who are your parents and and they're the people that protect you and do all these things. And we put so much pressure on them Mm. that it's like when they hurt us the first time or let us down with whatever time, it's like you you hold them to account as if it's like kingdom's going to come tomorrow. (laughs) As if you're God and it's judgment day. (laughs) No one's God. (laughs) But um, the the last question I want to ask you on that note is throughout this journey for you then, how has your perception of what family is changed, if any? I guess it's made me, it's really made me prioritise family more. Like I was definitely close with my family growing up with this sort of silence around around who we all were to each other I think that came between us slightly like we were close but we weren't the closest family you could imagine but now having lost my dad and having you know had to repair things with my mom and learning so much more about myself I really prioritized family like family is everything and I think before when I was younger I would sort of kid myself that it's not and I wanted to travel and do all these exciting things but you know it's possible to do that and really prioritize your family because that's the first example of, of love that you're going to receive in the world. And without love, you can't travel. You can't do all these fun things. You can't find a passion. You can't, you know, develop your sense of self. Like your family is, they're the people that foreground you in this world. They're the people that help you when you fall down and pick you back up again. And I don't think I really appreciated that until my dad got ill and now I look back and I wish that we'd spoken about things a little bit more and I wish that I'd got the chance to you know thank him for being such an amazing dad that stuck around when other men wouldn't have but he gave me so much love that I hope that as I get older I can you know pull that into my own family when I do have one and replicate some of what my parents taught me because yeah I guess family I've learned that it's it's everything I'm really proud of sort of the family narrative that I have even if it doesn't sort of make sense to a lot of people on the surface um yeah it's just super important (laughs) I mean I think that's a testament to the fact that you will be a good mom because literally you've centered this entire piece and so much of your work just personally and professionally towards this idea of of bettering your family bettering yourself loving your family through the good and the bad and that kind of unconditional love is something that we don't very see very often and so I'm sure you will be a great mom whenever you're ready to be if you're ever ready to be thank you you. this made me really emotional thank you guys it's lovely um no thank you for sharing so much with us and I feel like we've all you know as as you've pointed out as different as we all are as black women um you know we all come from different backgrounds i think all three of us were able to find some similarity or you know have your story resonate with us in in some way for different reasons and so mm. i think as multifaceted as we all are it's being multifaceted that sometimes allows us to find the points of unity and i think that's mm. a great thing about what your book shows as well is that you found by doing the traveling and by engaging in real self reflection so yeah, thank you, Georgina. Um, let people know, you know, your books out in the UK on the 18th, you said, with the yes. also, you know, books. That. Yeah, so I've got the book coming out in the UK on February 18th, and then in the US, February 24th, I want to say. I always forget because it's two separate publishers. Um, but yeah, it's available everywhere, Waterstones, Amazon. Um, I need to check what black-owned bookstores it's in, actually, because no one's really connected me, but I'd love to make sure that people can get it from there as well, so I'm going to have to look those up. Um, and uh, what is next for you as a writer, as a human being? What? Well, I actually have a travel book coming out for black women this year as well. Amazing. And I've been working on that sort of in lockdown. It was really fun. It was lovely escapism and... It's all about the places that I would recommend, not just for black women, but for solo travelers. And, you know, really talk about why it's revolutionary to travel the world solo as a black woman, because our movement's been restricted for so long. Um, And then, yeah, it has destination advice, um, sort of the realities of dealing with with othering abroad. But it's really, I think, a positive, uplifting travel accompaniment for anyone that likes to travel solo and and is black female. So that comes out this year and... 
that will be available online too. It's called Black Girls Take World. Sure. And then, yeah, that's that's two books that are coming out in one year, which is a bit mad, but COVID, that's we have amazing. to move. So. <laughs> Thank that's you. Amazing. And I'm a big fan of solar travel, so for sure. Yes, you were saying. We will definitely uh, keep a lookout for that. So thanks so much for joining us, guys. Don't forget and r- to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Please feel free to leave us a comment as well. Um, on Twitter and Facebook, we are Dope Black Woman. And on Instagram, we're Dope Black Woman 1. We will be back with you next week. Until then, stay blessed and unapologetically Black. All the way Black. Blackity Black. Blacktastic. Amazing, that works. That's great. That's perfectly my schedule as well. <laughs> I'll be like, Josh, we have to go now, okay? And he's like, Why? Right. I'm like, Josh, we, just, we have to go in the bedroom now. <laughs> and I'm going to leave this in the podcast and someone's like, why are you trying to find to have such a time? <laughs> it's a virtual orgy. Thank you. It's a virtual orgy with my girlfriends. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.